This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. You know what else feels good? To wake up this morning. It was fairly early this morning, a little before 8 o'clock, I think. And to read the following. It was just a phenomenal year. And know that someone was talking about this past year. Wait a minute. It was just a phenomenal year. What else can we say? And then we've got an amazing picture that outlines 2,753,000 pounds of food donations. We've got to find out a little bit more about this. Joining us right now from the London Food Bank is Glenn Pearson. Glenn, thanks for being here. Uh, Good afternoon, Mike. The announcement came from a tweet courtesy of Glenn. It was just a phenomenal year. What else can we say? You might be one of the only people who has been able to find a way to put those words on something that has taken place over the last 12 months, but it's great that it is in this way. Glenn, can you tell us what you meant by just a phenomenal year? Well, we've been around 35 years, Mike. We were there at the beginning, but we have never had any experience of what we got in the last 12 months. I mean, it was a year ago pretty well this week when it was announced that the the pandemic was here. Uh, In the next week, we had our first, our big spring food drive. We had to cancel all the physical part of it. And then we just went online and had a virtual uh, food drive. And we ended up getting twice what we got the year before. Every single food drive that we've had in the last 12 months has been phenomenal, far more than what we got in times of last year. And then the Business Cares food drive, what topped it off at the end of the year, you know, they thought they would be down to about 40% of what they got the year before. They ended up getting 140% more. They got over a million dollars. I mean, something's going on here. And as hard as COVID has been, there are countless, uh, I think, uh, words and stories and narratives of just how so many people showed up, like our frontline workers, like others. But COVID has baptized us as a generation into a really giving group at the moment. And the food bank, for us, fortunately, happened to be one of those places. So let's go through those numbers again. The twice as much, what does that encompass? Well, uh, you know, for instance, uh, if we had... Uh, 80,000 pounds that was gotten through a food drive, it suddenly became 200,000 pounds. What what ended up happening is each event was far greater than what we had anticipated. And it was so great that we had to get a secondary warehouse for the first time in our history to place all this extra food in. It also brought in all this extra money, which allowed us then to take on the homeless lunch program with RBC Place and 519 Pursuit. And when the city set up the WISH program, which was to provide shelter for homeless people, the food bank took on the entire cost of paying for the three meals a day for all of those people that are in there. We expanded our services and everything else. And it's not because the food bank is so great. That's not what I'm trying to imply. It's because the public and the businesses in this community gave so much that we were finally able to do what we had never been able to do in three decades. Glenn Pearson joining us from the London Food Bank. Never been able to do in three decades and in a year in which we are all working our way through a pandemic, it happens. Glenn, you've been able to talk with a lot of people in this community. What do they point to? What do they say is the reason why we're seeing this kind of thing? Um, They all have their 
stories of how this pandemic has affected them, many of them deeply personal, some of them tragic. Uh, but I think what it's done is like it's a generation uh, where we're all together experiencing the same thing. So it's not just people that are poor that are experiencing it or somebody who's a business executive or whatever it is. We're all experiencing it. And as some have told me, as some older ones, you know, they were there in the Blitz in World War II or their parents were. And they talked about when it was so bad that Winston Churchill came around and said, get back out dancing, get out, open your shops, do all these things that you need to do, just go on living. Well, we haven't been able to do that. And so somehow our compassion had to find some way of getting out there and helping. And I think they've just had so many Londoners have helped so many different charities, including the food bank. But it's because they're empathetic at the moment. We're all suffering. And people who suffer, often their hearts get larger and, and more understanding. And I think that's what's happened. Glenn Pearson with us from the London Food Bank. Glenn, we'll talk about what's coming up. And there is something coming up beginning next week. But you mentioned the dollar donations, and these have always been important in the past. But would you have been able to do some of the things that you just outlined without dollar donations? Impossible. I mean, I think it's not just that the dollar donations allowed us to do something like paying half a million dollars to help the homeless with meals. Uh, that that wouldn't have happened before because we didn't have that money. But also the money that was donated has allowed us to buy a lot more food than we had before. Also, it allowed us to build this greenhouse, this large greenhouse at the back of the food bank. Every day, tons of food is being grown there and given out in hampers on the same day. None of that would have happened if it would have just been a regular year. This wasn't a regular year. You know, uh, compassion just jumped over every hurdle that was there. So, no, I, I think it would have been impossible that those dollar figures that people donated made all the difference in the world. And they've allowed us to redesign, redesign systems, which is what we'll talk about next week at the press conference. But big things have happened, but it's only because of the generosity of Londoners. When we look at those dollars, is there a way... Do you think to have that sort of donation continue post-pandemic into next year? I don't think to this degree. But what we have learned, for instance, is that, you know, for 20, 30 years, you know, I've been on two different mayor's panels where we've talked about poverty and and things that we needed to do, but we just never quite had the money. Uh, But what's happened this year is that through donations to the food bank, we've finally been able to do things we never were able to. So I think this year we need to use that money to create change. So that's what we are trying to do, whether it's the greenhouse, new urban agriculture movement in London, or helping you know the homeless, uh, some of the partnerships we have established, new things we're doing with the city. These are significant things, but the reason why they're getting done is because we can afford them. We're not having to apply to other places for funding to get it. The London public was generous enough to us that we could create our own change. And this is this is something that's due to, to Londoners and what they have done. I'm not sure that will continue this year or the year after. It was a special year. If it does, that's great. But, and I encourage people to keep giving because we're going to create more change. But if not, this year was one for the history books. What about the use of food banks? What did we see in this area in terms of the number of people who made use of the London Food Bank? 
Yeah, that's a really good question, Mike. I mean, we were around at the beginning of the Canadian Association of Food Banks. That was partly started here in London. The Ontario Association of Food Banks, we were charter members of that 35 years ago. It started here in London. You know, so we've been aware of the food bank movement as it moved all its way through. And people have always said, you know, it's too bad we have to have food banks. We said that ourselves repeatedly. You know, we have to get something better. But what food banks have ended up doing and people forget this, is that they've been so successful at speaking with the public and with the organizations, unions, churches, all that stuff, that they've been able to get the supplies to get out to those other agencies that are permanent. Shelters, you know, uh, uh, places for people of mental health where they struggle, uh, isolated communities. Food banks have been able to actually use the success they've had at raising food and money and awareness and actually getting it to those groups that are still going to be around 100 years from now. So I think people have finally this year come to understand the usefulness of what food banks have done. And now in London, people are starting to see that, you know, the food bank is really helping jet put jet fuel in the urban agriculture project. Uh, here in London. It's a policy, but it just hasn't been able to get up off the ground. So I think we're starting to see that food banks are actually capable of doing a lot more fresh food, all of those kind of things than people ever gave them credit for even five years ago. Glenn Pearson joining us from the London Food Bank. Glenn, as a final note, guess what? Spring is almost here, and it does mean spring food drive. Don't let me steal any kind of thunder, but (laughs) will we hear more about that very soon? Yeah, next Thursday we're having our big uh, press conference and there's big new things coming. I mean, I can't release it yet because there's other partners that are part of it, but they will be there at the press conference. And London is going to be really delighted with what they hear. It's, it's, it's an expensive proposition. It's a huge amount of collaboration. But when Londoners hear about this next week, they're going to realize, yeah, things have really changed. And the thing that made that work was COVID and the generosity of Londoners or else we wouldn't be giving any of those announcements. So I thank all of them for all that they have done and the media for covering these stories. Boy, oh boy, how unique is that where we can look at COVID and say, hey, this this is allowing for something to take place. Glenn, thank you so much for the time. Thank you and Jane and everyone else for the work that you do. It is tremendous. It's so important and it's great to see what this community has done. Thanks for helping to raise the awareness, Mike. That's what it's all about. Appreciate it. That is Glenn Pearson from the London Food Bank as we talk about a number of things, including the pandemic actually being a reason that we are going to see some big things announced. Mark that down for next Thursday. Some big things announced. What was the opportunity that we had over this past year to look at how we've been doing things and say, okay, does it work? Does it work? Is it a case of, yeah, just keep doing it. It's the way we've always done it. No problem. Or do you look at it and say, mm, you know, maybe, just maybe. And that's obviously what they have been able to do. And the support that has come in, financial support, has been big. Has this just been London? Who knows? This is a tremendous community. Has it just been this area? We're going to expand and look not just in this area, but across the country in about 10 minutes. And we'll see if they're seeing similar things. Maybe we can stretch this and say, yes, Londoners, you know, the call comes out and it's there. Glenn said it. You're expecting 80,000 of something. You get 200,000 
of something, whether it's dollars, whether it's pounds. And what has gone on with the Business Cares Food Drive this year was excellent. The Spring Food Drive, the Easter Food Drive is coming up. Does that extend beyond? Can we look and say, yeah, it's not just a London thing, it's, it's a Canada thing. Coming up this weekend, if you caught last weekend, this was this was so well done. It was hard to watch, but it was so well done. It was hard to watch because it brought back so many different memories about how could this happen going back to 2010 and 2012 and the disappearance of Tory Stafford, the search for Tory Stafford, eventually finding out about the murder of Tory Stafford, the arrests that were made in the case, the trial that took place. And this weekend, we will be able to watch part two of Never Forget the Tory Stafford story on Global TV tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. And a big part of that is Mark Carcassol of Global News. And Mark joins us now to talk about what we may hear in part two. Mark, thanks so much for taking some time for us for having me mike it was hard watching last week but it was important watching and and it was really really well done in terms of what you were able to bring us back to you you looked back at at the story it didn't seem that there was an important moment that you missed in in putting this together and putting together part one what was it that you were hoping that you would be able to convey I think, you know, there were multiple things, certainly. Uh, for me, this was uh, a story that, as you know, I covered, especially the trial of Michael Rafferty from pretty much beginning to end. Uh, and, you know, uh, on a completely personal level, it's, you know, always been the story that has, has stuck with me. I, I would say that, you know, it's, it's, it's been the story for me of my career. And so I just wanted to make sure that I did a, a good job of touching on everything that happened and, and, you know, giving it all sort of equal weight. And of course, uh, keeping in mind who Tori Stafford was, how loved she was by her family, how her death affected the community and, you know, how, how justice was eventually served. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that remember those searches, whether you live in Woodstock, London, Toronto, wherever you may be, uh, searches and vigils all over the place. And, uh, it was a dark time, I think, for the entire country. I mean, there are certainly people across the country that remember that story, that were affected by it at the time, continue to be to this day. And it was just, those were all the things that were sort of weighing in my mind doing the story, and I just really wanted to do it justice. And the things that, that just, even watching them years later, that still didn't make sense, that video of Tory Stafford walking away with Terry Lynn McClintock, and you just think, no, that's, that, it's got to be someone she knows. Or all of those same memories just come flooding back for so many people who followed this so closely. You talked with Tory Stafford's mother, Tara McDonald, in part one. What was it like to sit down with her years later? It was it was surreal in a way because no one had ever really no one had seen her for I'd say the better part of the last decade. I mean, no one in terms of our industry. She hadn't done many interviews. I think she'd done a couple sporadic ones here or there. She did a fairly in depth one with Global News uh, after Rafferty's trial. So again, we're talking nine years ago. But for the most part, she'd stayed out of the limelight. So it was definitely interesting to see where she is now in her life. But 
the the whole basis of talking to her was really to talk about how what happened to her daughter and the way the spotlight burned her when it was shown on her during the search for Tori, uh, you know, the way that affected her life going forward. I mean, we heard in the story how, and we will hear more in, in part two, because part two is very much about the aftermath of all this, how it's left everyone. Uh, you know, we'll, we will hear again from Tara about how it's affected almost every aspect of her life going forward. She's been trying her best to sort of move on with her life and, and do the best that she can. Has she had some stumbles? Yes. Um, you know, is she perfect? No. Uh, but so that, that was sort of the basis of, of, of talking to her. And uh, it was interesting definitely to see where she's gone in life and, and how this has affected her. If, if there's one thing that you can really pick up on from talking to the various people involved in the story, it's that, you know, Tori's tragic death has sort of affected someone differently, each person that you talk to, and the way they've sort of chosen to move on with their life uh, has varied from person to person as well. Mark Carcassol joining us, Global News reporter and anchor, as we look at what you can see tomorrow night in part two of Never Forget. The Tory Stafford story, you can see that at 8 o'clock on Global TV. You mentioned talking about the aftermath. We're going to hear from someone who will remain nameless in Never Forget, but someone who has some very interesting information about Michael Rafferty. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, and that's something that we've already started. Uh, you can already find the story, that part of the story, on globalnews.ca right now, and it'll be in our local and national newscasts tonight. So, uh, you know, if you follow this story, you'll remember not long ago, not even three years ago now, uh, in late 2018, Rodney Stafford, Tory's dad, found out that Michael Rafferty had been moved from a maximum security prison to a medium security one. And he was very outraged about that. That, that was shortly after we had learned uh, Terry Lynn McClintock had been moved to an indigenous healing lodge in Saskatchewan. She was eventually moved back due to public outcry. The government did not reverse its course with regard to moving Michael Rafferty to medium security, though. Uh, and it would turn out a short while later, after hearing the public outcry and, and seeing nothing done, that a relative of Michael Rafferty's uh, would come to get in contact with Rodney Stafford and sort of, um, you know, pledge allegiance to Rodney's cause, which has been fighting for justice this entire time. Uh, I managed to uh, get in contact with and do an interview with that relative of Michael Rafferty's, again, on condition of anonymity, who says that part of the reason why he is fighting for Rafferty to be put back into maximum security, why he doesn't feel he belongs in medium security, is because he believes that Michael Rafferty extorted his own mother from prison. Uh, it's a very broad claim, and we go into it in detail both in our news reports and in the second episode of Crime Beat, but... To narrow it down, basically what he's alleging is that Michael Rafferty would constantly call his mother, tell him, my life is in danger here, I'm being threatened, I've been attacked, I need you to send money to this person, that person, this person, that person, and so on and so forth. This relative sent us uh, an entire folder with stacks of checks, receipts, money orders in it for a bunch of names that he says the family doesn't know. Many of these people located in Quebec, some of them as far as B.C., and they claim that these are not people that the family knows, certainly that uh, Michael Rafferty's mom would have known. She didn't seem to have many friends outside of her hometown of Kitchener. Uh, so the claim from this relative is that essentially he was extorting money from his mother, having money sent to the families of all these fellow inmates for nothing more than 
and favors, uh, some of them as simple as just junk food from the canteen, according to this relative. Now, we weren't able to get corroboration on those claims. We reached out to many people listed in those documents, called them, emailed them. Uh, those we did get in touch with really weren't cooperative at all, so we couldn't get any confirmation on those stories. But there's a lot of evidence there, and, and certainly just a you know, a, a, certainly a drastic accusation by a member of Michael Rafferty's family there and shows us a little bit of what he is allegedly up to behind bars and, and why, you know, it's just interesting to hear that even a member of his own family says he doesn't deserve to be where he is right now. He hasn't, doesn't seem to have learned any lessons. And, and when you say doesn't deserve to be where he is right now, you're not talking about doesn't deserve to be in prison. You're talking about doesn't deserve to be in medium security, should be somewhere else, right? Correct, yeah. He's saying he deserves to be where he was, in essence, back in maximum security. We're talking with Mark Carcassol, who is a reporter and anchor for Global News, and we're talking about Crime Beat and Part 2 of Never Forget Tory Stafford story, which will air tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. And as Mark says, there will be information from a relative. And it's not just somebody saying, hey, you know, here's here's what I've heard. You have checks, receipts, things like that. And what do you expect that was used for? Do we know? We don't know exactly, again, because the people that we talked to seem to totally deny that this even happened now. I have to say it would be a huge coincidence if we called a number uh, addressed to a person with the exact same name as is on one of these documents, and uh, it turns out that it's a different person with the same name. Like these, we're pretty confident, are the same people that we're calling, uh, but they're just denying any sort of involvement, denying that they even know uh, who Michael Rafferty or, or his mom, Deborah Murphy, are. Uh, so, you know, in terms of where the money goes after these checks, we don't really know. Um, but certainly there, there are a ton of them, Mike. I mean, the, the family estimates that, uh, Michael Rafferty's mother, Deborah Murphy, probably sent out anywhere from twenty to thirty thousand dollars between twenty fourteen and twenty eighteen to these people. Uh, the relative that I spoke to, uh, claimed she essentially bankrupted herself. Uh, she had a lot of health issues, um, and, uh, she died of a heart attack at the age of sixty. He claims that the stress from all this contributed to that. Um, so it's, it's, it's a real sprawl of information there. That's kind of hard to get a hold of. Again, once these checks are, are out of the picture, we don't know where the money goes, but it's, it's certainly the narrative painted by that relative is, is very disturbing. Boy, a story that we would think wrapped up in, in 2012 with the end of the trial sounds like it's done anything but and you look back over whether it's Terry Lynn McClintock being moved to the healing lodge like you had said mm-hmm. or Michael Rafferty and some of the things that he has tried in prison with appeals and and whatnot and now this I mean this this is something that continues to go and continues to be part of a, a very different side of Canadian fabric doesn't it? Yeah, uh, and that's been the entire thing for Tory's family is that, you know, they can't really seem to get any closure because every year or two, something else seems to pop up. And one of those two are back in the news again, doing something wrong or being moved somewhere that most people don't feel they deserve to be moved to. So uh, that is certainly what has made it hard for them to get closure. And certainly if you've been following what Rodney Stafford's been doing over the past few years, certainly what led him to uh, spawn the movement that he has. Uh, he's had a couple protests 
Uh, now, because of the pandemic, obviously, he hasn't been able to do those in person anymore, but he still has uh, very much an online presence. He's been gathering with uh, families of other victims of murder uh, in Canada, and they're basically saying that what they want is for people who are convicted of murder and sentenced to life to do life and to essentially do hard time. They don't want to see them move to medium security. They don't want them to have an easy go for the rest of their lives. Not that medium security is necessarily easy, but they don't want them to serve anything less and do anything less than, you know, the maximum of hard time. And in those cases, you know, you, you would you what other what other suggestion should there be for convicted criminals in that way? It's uh, it's certainly something that we can discuss for a long time. It's up to the courts and the legal system to make sense of it all. And Mark, thank you for making sense of some of the aftermath of what has happened in what was uh, such a tragic event going now back almost. 10 plus years we'll look for it tomorrow night anything else that you think we should know before we close out uh not not that uh, i could think of just uh, i mean I, I think uh i think anyone interested should definitely watch the show and watch the news reports tonight it's just uh it's definitely interesting to see what's alleged to have been going on even just over the past few years Mark, thanks so much for the job that you and everyone else has done at Global. Really appreciate the time. Keep safe. Anytime, Mike. Thanks a lot. You too. That's Mark Carcassol, anchor and reporter with Global News. And, yeah, that's it's tough. And I know in some ways in talking about this, we are, you know, continuing that story. But it's such an important story for what Mark just mentioned right there. When you look at what Rodney Stafford is asking for, is it too much to ask that a convicted criminal of a heinous crime, you don't get much lower? I don't know if you do get lower. Does that as hard time? Does that in a maximum security prison? Is it too much to ask? There are things that end up falling through cracks and you don't know that they'll fall through cracks until they do. But when you identify them, you have the opportunity to make changes. And if what we see here can do that, maybe it's just a little added justice, right? This isn't meant to be a riddle, but it does sound like one. What brings together Vanessa Williams, John Cicada? Marilyn McCoon, Billy Davis Jr., the Cow Sills, Lee Greenwood, Kelly Pickler. What brings them together? Tom Bergeron, all in one place, kind of at one time. Well, the answer is Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers could bring together absolutely anyone. And they are coming together tomorrow in something that we can all take part in what would have been Mr. Rogers' 93rd birthday. The person who has done the work in putting this together is as accomplished as they come. Dennis Scott is a two-time Grammy and Emmy award-winning composer and producer and joins us now. Dennis, thanks for being here on London Live. How are things going? Great. Thanks for having me. Well, you are putting together something that, that I think we need to highlight in a certain way because we think of Mr. Rogers in the way of he was a children's entertainer. He was a pioneer. How many times do we hear 
He was quite the songwriter. We don't. That usually doesn't rise to the top, does it? It doesn't, which is why I'm kind of on a campaign to bring that to people's attention, not only with these uh, recordings that I've done, but also to get him installed into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And uh, for your listeners, if they're interested, they can go to thankyoumrrogers.com and they can sign a petition to, to acknowledge that Fred Rogers was a great songwriter. And, and most people don't know that music really was his first love. He's been quoted as saying that. And it's true. Uh, and he was also a fine musician. He was a very accomplished pianist as well. He started when he was seven years old. And there's a great story that will be told tomorrow at the party by one of his uh, fans and the man who wrote a biography about him who tells a story about how he got his first piano from his grandmother and all sorts of fun things like that. That's fantastic. So we'll talk more about Mr. Rogers and songwriting, but let's go over what is taking place tomorrow, Dennis. Lay it on us and, and how we get involved. Well, this really started when um, all the uh, rebirth of interest in Mr. Rogers came up uh, a couple of years ago, and there was a great documentary about him. And I was actually involved uh, by way of going to the movie theaters and uh, giving a little talk about Mr. Rogers. And afterwards, there was a Q&A, and um, I just started getting great stories from fans of his who, who had either a, a personal relationship or an encounter with him. And I thought, these need to be recorded and filmed, so I got them to come in and tell their stories. And uh, they will be attending the party virtually by way of their interviews. So you'll hear all these wonderful stories about this man who is almost too too true and good to be believed. He he was just such a a wonderful soul, and uh, you know gave us great songs and great music and and great things to live by. So uh, you'll hear people telling their stories, and these artists that you mentioned earlier, like uh, Kelly Pickler and Lee Greenwood, and uh, they'll all be there telling, either giving a shout-out, a birthday greeting, or singing a little birthday song for Mr. Rogers. So uh, we're going to have fun with that, and I think your listeners will be uh, um, interested to hear that Tom Tom Bergeron, not only is he a great TV personality, but he's also a good singer and a great whistler. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I had no idea. Of all the things that Tom Bergeron has done, from host to America's Funniest Videos to stand-up to, I, th- I think he was on The Masked Singer not too long ago, a great whistler. Yeah, and that came up uh, as a result of the recording we did together. We, uh, I knew he was going to inter- interview people and be host to this, but also... Uh, we asked him to sing a song which is on this album called Thank You, Mr. Rogers, Memories, Music and Memories. Gee, I need to remember my own album. Thank You, Mr. Rogers, Music and Memories, which has all those artists you mentioned doing their versions of Mr. Rogers songs, you know, giving, reimagining them and, and breathing new life into them. And uh, they, they really stand up. They're not only for children's years, but they're for adult years. But I digress. When we were at the session... Uh, I found out that Tom loved to sing, and he sang a Mr. Rogers song for us. And in the middle, he started whistling. I said, wait a minute, do that again. And I said, you, this is amazing. We've got to get you doing this, not only on this song, but the last song on the album, which I happened to write as a, a thank you to Mr. Rogers called Thank You for Being You. And Tom actually kicks it off with his whistling skills. 
We are talking right now about something that you can see actually tomorrow, and it is a Mr. Rogers birthday celebration. He would have been 93. Virtual birthday party on YouTube. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Dennis Scott joining us, Grammy Award winner, Emmy Award winner, and the brainchild in behind the virtual happy birthday, Mr. Rogers. Dennis, take a look at the list of people who are participating and what this says. I mean, you've got the cow sills involved. You've also got Kelly Pickler involved. Kelly was born in 1986. I mean, the number of lives that Mr. Rogers touched over such a long span of time. What do you see when you look at the list of people and, and just how wide ranging this is? Well, it, it actually, that list of different names of people who do different musical styles is exactly what we were hoping for. We wanted to get an eclectic group of people who could do different styles of music, because I believe that a great song is one that can be performed in lots of different ways by lots of different people. That's why the songs that we know and love are all part of the great American songbook and probably the great Canadian songbook too. So um, it's, it's interesting to hear how Vanessa Williams treats a Mr. Rogers song as opposed to Mickey Dolenz, who's known for the Monkees, who I grew up with, and um, see that uh, these songs really have a lot of variety to them. And it's great how Mr. Rogers did it on his show because he, he was so intimate when, when he delivers his songs. It's so conversational when he speaks to uh, children through his music. But this is a whole new thing. It's it's hearing these songs as as they might have been played on the radio, and it, good golly, if uh, Mr. Rogers had gone down that road, who knows? He he would have been right up there with all the other artists and and songwriters. Let's talk about the songs now, Dennis, because. We know it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. I mean, it's catchy. Anybody who's watched Mr. Rogers on TV at any point in their lives, you watch that once, that's a song that'll stick with you. But when you talk about other songs, are these songs that all of these performers had to learn, or or did some of them know them organically from having watched the show? Most of them knew them, although I did uh, go into the Mr. Rogers repertoire and i tried to find a few things that were a little less traveled uh songs like this is my home which jim brickman performs and uh it turns out it i get a lot of comments from people saying we love this song we didn't know about it um so um there are other songs that are maybe a little less known like um when the day turns into night which lee greenwood sings and it truly is a beautiful ballad and i would put it up against you know, some of the new great songs of our time, Mr. Rogers' choice of melody and choice of chords, it it's really a lot more complex than any children's song that I know of. And I've been doing children's music for a long time. Uh, and yet it's still approachable. So, and um, you know, all these artists did such a great time. You mentioned his theme song, Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is, of course, the coveted song. That's the one that every artist would have liked to have done. And uh, it was a tough decision trying to decide who ended up singing it. And if you notice on this album, um, it appears twice, once by, sung by the Castles, and it's really a fun treatment of the song, and I think people will be bouncing around to it. But there's also the very first Spanish version 
of a Mr. Rogers song, and it's that song, Won't You Be My Neighbor, in Spanish, Podemos Ser Amigos. And uh, we were lucky. I work, uh, uh, as a sideline, I work in a Beatles tribute band called the Wanna Beatles, and my drummer's father was an interpreter for the courts in Miami, and we got him to write, um, not a, actually a translation, but a, a treatment in Spanish of that song, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And John Sakata just gives this high energy, emotional reading of it. And it's it's great. I think my wife, when she heard him singing it, she swooned. So I'll put it that way. <laughs> Dennis Scott joining us. Grammy and Emmy winning producer as we talk about a birthday celebration for Mr. Rogers that anybody can go and, and be a part of tomorrow. It's available on YouTube. It is very easy to find. You just look up Mr. Rogers' birthday celebration, virtual birthday party, and you'll see a picture of him and a number of the other characters from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood surrounded by all kinds of balloons. And we're also talking about the music of Mr. Rogers and the idea that he was that accomplished a songwriter. So, Dennis, it's interesting to get your your thoughts on this simply because we would think of all of the music that he wrote just to be little songs for kids done on the show in the land of make-believe or wherever he happened to mm -hmm. include them. But you're looking at these from from their composition and saying, you know, it's not just kids' music. That There was a lot of talent here. Yeah, I, I really feel that way. Um, and that's what attracted me to getting involved with Mr. Rogers' music in the first place. I was like anybody else. I was sitting in my kitchen watching the TV, and a rerun of his show came on, and he was singing this pretty little song called It's You I Like. And I said, Good golly, that's a... That's really a gorgeous song. I wonder who wrote it. And then I found out it was Mr. Rogers. And then I wondered, why hasn't anybody else ever covered this song? So I did more research and found out nobody had. And I said, this is, this is my, my new calling. I just felt compelled to give these songs a, a different kind of treatment that I think they deserved, uh, just as much as they deserved the treatment that Mr. Rogers gave them. But they could have a life way beyond just his television show and uh, like i said i think if people go to if people go to our website thank you mr rogers.com which is also where you can see the video it'll be right there on the front page but you can hear samples of the song and uh, you can write me a note tell me if you don't agree that that this gives a whole new light to mr rogers music well thank you for drawing attention to it it is remarkable how many individuals you have been able to get together to perform. But I guess, Dennis, is that not some of the magic of Mr. Rogers right there? You ask somebody to be a part of this, what would they say? Well, yeah, I mean, now I think about it and the way you put it, uh, Mr. Rogers actually helped make some of my dreams come true because uh, I was a big Monkees fan growing up, and here I am standing next to Mickey Dolan's uh, how does that happen? And it happened because of Mr. Rogers. Same thing with uh, Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis from The Fifth Dimension. I mean, all their songs are, are just part of our the soundtrack of our lives. And there we were, having coffee, recording Mr. Rogers' songs. So he really did bring us together. 
Remarkable. Well, Dennis, thanks for sharing some time with us. Best of luck with the event. Again, you can go to thankyoumrrogers.com. You can find it there. You can search for it on YouTube, and it will begin at 11 a.m. tomorrow, our time, 10 a.m. Central Time. Dennis, can't thank you enough again. Please keep safe and uh, continued success. Oh, thank you. It's a real pleasure. Nice talking to you. Great talking with you. That is Dennis Scott. He is... The person who put this together, the virtual happy birthday, Mr. Rogers. And if you have kids or grandkids, well, he's also done a whole lot for stage productions like Sesame Street Live and the Magic School Bus. And as Dennis says, he's been involved with a lot of, of children's music, but has also worked with Sugarland and Allison Krauss and Faith Hill and Ray Charles and Amy Grant. We could talk with Dennis another time just about the people he's been able to work with in his life. But he is a two-time Grammy Award winner and Emmy Award winning producer. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.